Welcome to The Lamb and the Scroll, where we unpack scripture using the rich tradition of the church. I'm your host, John Breyer, and in this episode, we'll be taking a look at four key Old Testament passages that summarize the story of Israel. As Christians, one of our primary responsibilities is to go out and share the good news. We read this at the end of Matthew's Gospel, where, he, where Jesus tells his disciples to go out and make disciples of all nations. Now, to do this, we have to have some background knowledge. And I'd like to start today's episode by taking a look at a short clip from Bishop Barron where he describes one of those characteristics that we need to have in order to be an effective evangelizer or an effective uh, person sharing the good news. You've got to know the story of Israel. And here I'm, I'm um, working with people like, like N.T. Wright and others who would say, at the heart of evangelization is the good news that the story of Israel has come to its fulfillment, that the promises of God, as Paul said, have all met their yes in Jesus. When you abstract Jesus from Israel, you get the bland spiritual teacher, guru, Christ, who's a kind of contemporary form of the Gnostic Christ. So I'm, I told the students, Marcion's Christ is evangelically uncompelling. So remember Marcion back in the second century, was kind of a crypto uh, Gnostic who said, um, get rid of the Old Testament. It's a witness to a, to a fallen, you know, uh, unworthy deity. Just keep Luke and some parts of Paul. And the church said, absolutely not to that proposal. And I'm telling the guys, you have to say no to it as well. You have to know the story of Israel to be an evangelist. So in summary, what Bishop Barron is saying is that to be an effective evangelizer, we need to know the story of Israel. And so in this episode, what I thought I would do was provide a brief overview of that story of Israel. But to add in a little twist to it, what I decided to do was to do so using four passages from the Old Testament. So what I uh, thought about was how can I summarize the story of the people of Israel using four simple short passages. So in today's episode, I'll be presenting those four passages that I've chosen All of them are just a couple verses, or in some cases, even just one verse, that can help to guide us through the story of Israel um, that we need to know to be an effective evangelizer. And so as we go through the episode, I'll share those verses with you, and then we'll walk through the basic uh, storylines that follow the Israelites. Now, as you might imagine, there are plenty of ways I could frame this, plenty of different uh, verses we could choose. So if you have a different set of four or five or six points of emphasis, that's awesome. But in this episode, I'll be presenting four verses or short passages that I believe summarize the story. So let's get started. The first verse brings us all the way back to Genesis, which is a logical place to begin. And I'm going to start the overview with chapter 3, verse 15. This verse is situated right after the first sin, right after that break between humanity and God, that act of disobedience that drove a wedge between uh, our relationship with God. And so sure, there's maybe more we could get to beforehand, but I'm going to focus in on this verse, chapter 3, verse 15, where God is addressing the serpent right after the fall. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. They will strike at your head while you strike at their heel. This verse is super important to understanding the story of Israel because we see that right after the fall, God is still promising he's going to redeem humanity. All seems lost. This connection that humanity has with God, this relationship of love seems broken and gone. 
But in this verse, God is promising he's going to redeem us. This verse is traditionally referred to as the Proto-Evangelium. Proto for first, Evangelium referring to the gospel. It's the first instance of good news. And why is that? Well, it's the first time after the fall that God makes a promise to humanity saying that he is going to redeem humans. Now again, how does he do that? Well, he says here in addressing the serpent that there is going to be separation between the serpent and the woman. Now, in this story, the serpent is a great representation of the reality of the devil. And between the offspring of the devil and the offspring of the woman. Now, in this story, the woman, of course, is a reference to Eve. But as we fast forward through the story, we see that Eve, in some ways, is foreshadowing Mary, whose offspring will, of course, defeat the devil in the ultimate battle. And that's what we read in the second half of the verse, where the offspring of the serpent, the devil, will strike at the heel of the offspring of the woman. Certainly no death blow. But the offspring of the woman will be striking at the head. That's a death blow. And so what we're seeing here is that God is promising salvation from the very beginning. And so as we trace this story of Israel, Starting from the very beginning, we have to keep that framework in mind that God is working through these people to redeem all of humanity. That's why this verse is so important. The second verse that I'd like to point to today highlights a theme that's going to be present through the people of Israel as we progress from the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, up to the story of salvation from the promised land. There's a theme that's set up and that will be explained in this verse. So this verse is situated at the end of the book of Genesis. It's in chapter 50 and it's verse 20. And this verse comes to us in a dialogue between Joseph and his brothers. Now, just for a quick moment, remember that Joseph and his brothers are the sons of the third and final patriarch, Jacob. It's these 12 brothers whose descendants will form the tribes of Israel. And in this story, Joseph has been sold by his brothers into slavery. He's been left for dead. All hope seems lost. But God still works through Joseph to achieve the salvation of many people. Because it's Joseph who stores up grain in Egypt after he works his way through prison up to the right hand of Pharaoh. It's, again, Joseph who stores the grain and is able to provide food not only for the Egyptians, but for many people around them during time of famine. And as a result, he leads to the salvation of many, many people. And so here at the end of Genesis chapter 50, we have Joseph addressing his brothers. And Joseph says this, Even though you meant harm to me, God meant it for good, to achieve this present end, the survival of many people. And of course, that has very clear ramifications in this story, but it also speaks to a much broader theme throughout the story of Israel, which is this, God works through bad and trying circumstances to achieve greater goods. God's salvific plan is not going to be distracted by anyone. We saw that back in the first verse that I pointed out in Genesis chapter 3. But we'll see that as the story goes on, God will continue to work through fallen beings, you and I. He'll work through David. He'll work through Solomon. He'll work through many people who do bad things, but he'll still bring about the greater good. And of course, later, he will bring about the ultimate good, our salvation. And so this verse represents an important touch point for the story because it sets up this idea that's going to continue playing out that has already started playing out in this story, that God works through bad situations to bring about greater goods. 
That doesn't mean the bad circumstances or the bad things, the evil things become good. No, that's not it. But God still works through them to bring about greater goods. And of course, ultimately through an evil act, the evil act of killing Jesus on the cross, he achieves the greatest good. Now, the third verse I'd like to point out today takes us a little bit farther down the story of Israel. So again, keep in mind, we've had the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They've led to these tribes of Jacob that have eventually moved to Egypt. They've ended up in slavery in Egypt. And of course, it's there that God will work through Moses to lead to the saving of his people, the freeing of his people. Now, these people will wander in the desert in search of the promised land. It's there that they'll receive the Ten Commandments, yet they continue struggling. They continue uh, failing, wrestling in their relationship with God. They ultimately do arrive in the promised land, but it's here that they again renew these struggles, this wrestling to be in right relationship with God. Because what they find is that they allow themselves to be distracted by their enemies. And they fall into the sin of idolatry, of worshiping things that are not God, whether it's other gods, whether it's money, whatever it happens to be. They worship things that are not God. And it's only through the actions of people called judges that they are returned back to the worship of the one true God. And so this sets up this cycle of judges where when there is a judge, the people of Israel are able to stay in right relationship with God. But as soon as that judge dies, the Israelites fall away from the practice of worshiping the one true God. As a result, they fall into the hands of their enemies, they cry out to God, and then another judge is raised up. And so this repetitive cycle, this repetitive pattern of behavior um, takes place throughout um, the initial inhabiting of the promised land. But the end of the book of Judges, which has just profiled this cycle over and over and over again, is striking. It concludes in chapter 21, here with verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own sight. And so that's the third verse that I'd like to point out today. It's a kind of creepy end to the book of Judges. There's no king in Israel. And the ironic part is that there is a king in Israel. It's supposed to be God. But yet the people of Israel have forgotten that over and over and over and over again. And so when they ultimately will go to Samuel and say, hey, we want a king, it's only because they're looking at other nations saying they all have kings. We want one too. And again, they're forgetting the point, which is that they already have a king. But notice the second half of the verse. Everyone did what was right in their own sight. Now that's a terrifying thought. That's anarchy. That's chaos. Now as the story continues, the Israelites eventually do have kings, right? Their, their nation comes together under a kingdom, which is led first by Saul, then by David, then by Solomon, all of whom are fallen figures. Yet, as we saw with the previous verse, God still works through them. But it's not ultimately this political structure which is going to lead to their ultimate salvation. This is not the Savior that's been promised back in the first verse I shared with you. Yet that's what the people of Israel are waiting for, is this king, this royal figure who sits upon a throne and leads a military army. And that's why it's so important that when we get to Jesus, we understand that context and how he blew people's minds because they were not anticipating this type of king. And so here I'd like to share with you a short commentary that ties together the story of Jesus with a reflection on this last verse from the book of Judges. This comes to us from catholicculture.org. I'll, I'll share the link in the show notes. And it says this, The one thing that Jesus would not do is permit people to politicize him. 
he would not be made an earthly king. This is a crucial point. The book of Judges is the beginning of a long section in the Bible that demonstrates something we continue to forget after over 3,000 years. The answers we need are not political. Politics cannot save. And that's why when we get to Jesus later in this story, we see that he is expressly not a political figure. He's a religious figure. He's God. And we've got to keep that context in mind because what the Israelites were waiting for, what they're longing for is a kingly figure. And sure, we're going to get that with the king of the Jews, but it's going to be a different type of king than they are anticipating. And certainly a different kind of king than they wanted at this time in their story. And so that brings us to the fourth and final verse I'd like to profile today, which is taken from the book of Isaiah. Now, Isaiah is full of prophecies. These prophecies work on a number of different levels. And so it's very difficult to pick just one of these prophecies to share with you. And so what I'm going to do is I'm pulling from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. Upon his shoulder dominion rests. They name him Wonder Counselor, God Hero, Father Forever, Prince of Peace. His dominion is vast and forever peaceful. Upon David's throne and over his kingdom, which he confirms and sustains by judgment and justice, both now and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so that's the final touch point from this story of Israel. They are waiting for a Messiah, an anointed one. The kingdom under Saul, David, and Solomon had broken apart. Then both parts of those that former kingdom were defeated. The people were sent into exile, and they're in a time of waiting, a time of longing. Now, this verse from Isaiah points out that it's going to be a child born to them, a son, a man, a person. And of course, where should that direct our minds? Well, directly to Jesus, who is fully God and fully man. And so that's where the story of Israel leads us, is from this progression, which began in creation and then in the sin that followed. And all through that story, there's been this promise of someone who's going to redeem the Israelites. That despite all of their failings, all of their fallings, all of their sin, God still works to achieve that greater end, the salvation of all. And so as we evangelize, as we bring the good news to the world, it's important for us to know this story because it's this story that sets the foundation for Jesus. And of course, Jesus is the good news, but without this background, we can't get there. Now, I'd like to propose a second reason that this story is important. And that second reason is because this story of Israel is also our own stories. It's in our own lives that we struggle. It's in our own lives that we fall short. And that through our own misdoings, through our own sin, God is still able to work. In our own lives, when we encounter difficulty, God still works through those opportunities to bring us grace and to bring us back to him because he desires our salvation. We see that throughout the story of Israel, and hopefully we can come to see that in our own lives.